Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, we're doing something a little bit different because we're celebrating. We're celebrating two things. First, last month we just passed the 15,000 subscriber mark. 15,000 subscribers, insane. So thank you all to everyone who's been listening. If you're new to the show, this episode is not going to be like previous ones, right? We're not going to be interviewing another founder. We're not going to be doing a roundup. Instead, we're going to explore a handful of really wacky concepts. From sand to Tyga launching his own delivery-only chicken fingers restaurant. So enough of me talking. Let's jump on in to episode 50 of In Good Hands. So to kick off, I think, Dan, we'll probably start with you. What are one of these topics you have in your notes? And let's jump on in. Maybe it's a shame that we're starting with me. And I really want to dive into something that on its face is super duper boring. You see it every day. It's on the streets that you drive, the sidewalks that you walk on, and the houses and buildings that you go into every single day. Probably less so now, considering the circumstances, but concrete. And, you know, concrete has been this miracle technology that allowed ancient Rome to grow into this metropolis. And then recently in the 20th century, we've been able to create ultra-dense cities that have led to incredible developments. Concrete's durable, it's strong, it's fireproof, it's also incredibly malleable, and it's not ugly. You think of a Sydney Opera House is made out of concrete. And so there's a lot of potential, but there's also a lot of climate problems. And I think like the best place to start with that is sand, one of these essential building blocks for concrete. And for reference, in 1950, there were 750 million people worldwide living in cities. And today there's more than 4 billion people with tens of millions added every single year. So that's like the equivalent of adding eight plus New York cities to the world every single year with more people to house, more workspaces to work in, and a big problem of where is the material going to come to? And so sand might not be running out soon, but the extraction of sand is becoming increasingly problematic on par with oil or natural gas. So, you know, we we think of beaches when we think of sand or we think of deserts right there, so easy to collect. But a lot of that's the wrong kind of sand for building production. And so we have to keep digging deeper and deeper to mine sand for concrete production. And this is creating a huge engineering struggle, but also the amount of carbon required to create concrete is actually rising because the source materials are harder and harder to get at. Now you mix that Like how, (laughs) but the, my first inclination is that are we going to, are we going to be able to do something that's like impossible foods for foundational materials, like through fermented processes or something of that. Did you do any research? Like what what are the, what are the solves here? What what are people tinkering on in the space? Absolutely. And I think this is where concrete goes from being the boring everyday material to becoming super interesting. So much like we can create artificial diamonds or artificial gemstones for engineering applications, we can create all sorts of different artificial rocks. And so using these artificial rocks that can be created by capturing carbon even, we can create much more sustainable concrete. And so one example is Forterra. 
is a company that's making cement that has a pathway to 100% carbon, carbon neutral concrete. Currently, it's at 60%. They use, they're hoping to use electric kilns to make this a little bit easier. And so they capture CO2, turn it into carbonates, and allow that to be the input material for cement and concrete, which is incredibly exciting. And then you can use different construction methods like 3D printing, which is something that I really want to dive into with an actual guest in the industry at some point Mm -hmm. to create dynamic environments that are much lower carbon footprint that can solve what we're seeing is we have a renter's crisis right now because of the coronavirus. If we could figure out ways to cheaper, cheaply make and mass distribute construction materials that are also carbon positive and potentially carbon negative, we can make residential space more than two times more efficient. So we can make 300 foot square foot apartments that are affordable and are available to people so that they can work and, and afford to live in spaces. Dude, this is so thought provoking. So to quickly address both of those points the the latter on the 3d printing if anyone's listening and has a connection or a buddy or friend that works at icon build dude we gotta get them on the show if if you haven't seen them they they had a a video that went viral either last year or two years ago and they're doing this just this they're 3d printing fully functional houses bottoms up i believe in 48 hours or less and they just inked a partnership with some military agency with the United States in which either Marines or some type of ground troops can create these vehicle homes in a super quick time that'll actually hide or house and hide military vehicles like ATVs and tanks using the same exact technology. So anyone listening, if we have a connect there, would love to get introduced or damn, maybe we just cold outreach to these fellows. The first point I think is, uh, is also super compelling. I can imagine a world. So I think you're right. How do we take waste this, all these emissions in the air and then use it as uh, an input material for some of these foundational elements? I think something that could be even more compelling is in some future world, if a concrete alternative that also has the same properties as concrete could also act as inherent carbon sinks like soil. Mm-hmm. I know when we look at a, a proxy or apples to apples comparison is in plastics, we interviewed Notpla and they're creating a seaweed based packaging solution for beverages and food. And it inherits a lot of the same properties, right? It can hold liquid, can maintain temperatures and in some ways temperature resistant it still has a little bit of a ways to go but if there's some way to make a concrete alternative also behave as a carbon sink oh man talk about a holy grail right there this is where it gets really interesting so concrete's become the default building material of choice it's quick it's by and large pretty cheap and it's really able to do large structures but Maybe to move forward, we have to look back and doing some research into sort of the construction area of these problems. Mass timber came out as one of these like leading solutions to that problem. And so wood has its problems, right? It takes a long time to grow a tree into an appreciable size 
to be able to do large scale building, right? Mm -hmm. Not anymore. So what we can do is we can use younger trees, smaller trees to create planks and this mass timber approach that allow us to create carbon negative building structures that can be grown within a couple of years in large swaths of forest. And so through some modeling and testing has fixed a lot of its problems. We can create really cool looking buildings that are also incredibly environmentally forward thinking. I know here in New York, in Brooklyn, there is an entire apartment development project that'll be built from the ground up in wood as well. And I think, was it Seattle or Portland that has the tallest or is going to have the tallest wood skyscraper in the U.S.? I could be wrong on that front, but that is super interesting. I didn't know that was a constraint. Now that I think more about outside of the stability and flammability issues, just to to create wood, (laughs) you need a tree, which has an inherent constraint on time. So that is interesting. So do you think that is the future? Are we, in terms of what we're going to see as the most prevalent input, do you see a world where both of these are used in mass. What do you think the future looks like on this front? Well, what I'm really excited about with any option that is carbon negative or even carbon neutral to a degree or, or carbon negative to its alternative. The thing that I'm really excited about is that it, it can become a lot more democratic. So for example, we, we interviewed Nori and we've looked at a few other carbon markets And there's now all this money being poured in into carbon neutrality on companies that can't necessarily go carbon neutral in what they do. Take, for instance, like Microsoft. Mm -hmm. But if they can sink that money that they're using to offset their carbon usage into products that aren't necessarily just capping landfills or things that don't necessarily go into the regular person's everyday life, we could be looking at housing prices dropping increased accessibility to a single family home, into suburban living. There's a lot of exciting developments that can be priced in through sort of the growth of the carbon marketplace, which I think that's the best way to look forward about how are we going to pay for all this? Because new things tend to be expensive until they're refined and adapted. Mm -hmm. But now we have this huge sort of free market subsidy that allows us to solve a lot of these problems in terms of cost and output. Ooh, Dan, I think this is a perfect segue to one of the things I had on my notes around impact investing. Yeah, let's dive into it. So to to your point, I completely agree. I think there needs to be a combination of big corporate that rolls out these multi-billion dollar funds in which you're right, if their products themselves cannot be carbon neutral or positive, then at least committing to offsets in some nature or funding other projects that have these kind of compounding carbon positive downstream effects. Great. Same with federal subsidies. Like we need all of the above. Some of the things that still interest me most are these early stage impact investors where they look at the free market. They say, yes, these things are great, but ultimately the things that will be the solutions that will be the most effective and resilient are where you can start bringing down the average cost of goods for these things without compromising on quality and convenience, et cetera. And 
a well-known investor. His name's Chamath Palpatia. For anyone listening, if you're unfamiliar with him, he was a Facebook executive. He's now a part owner of the Golden State Warriors NBA team. He also is a big-time investor. And he put out this tweet, and it said, uh, are you interested in decarbonization, sustainability, and climate change and want to do something about it? I need help allocating a few billion dollars into these areas over the next two, three years. So I'm turning to your help. And then he continues, in seven pages or less of single-spaced prose, propose a framework we can use to buy and build technologies, companies, and products that result in a holding company, which can more meaningfully advance the efforts of decarbonization, climate change, and sustainability. And he continues at the end, ultimately, he's going to pick three finalists. These three finalists will then work together to refine their proposals into holistic, integrated proposal. All of them will get $25,000 for their efforts regardless. And then after the process of integration, he's going to publish the final work and all of them will be offered full-time jobs to then actually execute and implement the strategies. <laughs> the RFP closed, I think, two or three days ago. He got over 900 submissions. And these aren't <laughs> just individuals. Some of these are 60, 70-person collectives of researchers, of founders. So this is the type of stuff. Talking about publicizing, open sourcing your interest in funding the future of climate research and startup creation. And then saying, hey, like you don't need a pay to play. You don't need to know people. If you put together the most compelling seven page proposal, I'm not only going to fund you regardless for your efforts, but I'm then going to employ you and work with you to help change the world. Come on. That's so compelling. Did you see this? What, what do you think about this approach to galvanizing and mobilizing interest in the sector? I think open source is the best way to solve this problem. And I think it comes down to the last point or the last effort that he highlights when he talks about what he's doing is that decarbonization is super important. Climate change, obviously this huge problem and what we've centered on with this show, but sustainability is really big. And it's not just about the health of our planet. It's about the health of the people on that planet. It's the, the health of the economy in that planet. It's this whole environment that's all connected together. And so creating ways in which people can demonstrate value, demonstrate interest, demonstrate capability in a non-traditional manner, I think is important. Because I think oftentimes, and something that we're seeing with the social development in our country now, is that there are voices that are unintentionally or, or in some cases systemically ma marginalized. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't get the opportunity to work at McKinsey and work on a really important problem and interface with you know, leaders, or they don't get that chance to join Y Combinator because they don't have the initial startup base or, or the consulting base mm -hmm. to solve the problems that they might shoot around in their, in their living rooms. Mm -hmm. But with open source projects like this, Anybody can submit a proposal and anybody who wants to put in the time and do the research and has a really good understanding can put together and at least get noticed to some degree. Mm -hmm. I'd imagine that outside of the three finalists, there's going to be a lot of proposals that garner some interest and, and are collected into those final 
proposal sets. Mm -hmm. And you're right. And to build on this, just to tie the loop with the initial segue to this topic, a lot of these ideas, right, decarbonization at scale, sustainability at scale, while they might be idealistic in nature in year one, really take many years to introduce to market in an effective way. We had Lilium on the show and they're pioneering electric air travel. And yes, at some point, this is going to be an inevitable mode of transportation. But <laughs> the, the first few people who take the leap into building the foundational technology that enables this movement operate on a totally different time horizon and risk profile. He said that, or Oliver said from Loom said, it's a 10 year journey just to bring this type of transportation mode into existence, to get the technology right, to get to economies of scale, to get uh, technology that enables economical transportation at scale. So the only way that happens are investors, people with capital that are willing to operate or to extend their time horizons such that frontier technology is like this can exist in the first place and that audacious researchers, inventors, and founders can have an have a legitimate at bat. Yes, just again, to, to tie the loop, subsidies, we need them. We need big corporate partners that are funding efforts of this nature. But we also do need people like Chamath that outline what exactly the RFP is, what the needs are in the marketplace and demonstrating a willingness to support them with explicit intentions of funding them for their efforts and then employing them, either funding them through an equity position or employing them in a full-time opportunity to help implement the strategies that they've outlined. It's we, we need that type of risk capital and the crazy people that have the willingness to support them if we're ever going to make a dent into this problem set. Yeah, and I think in these sort of high concept verticals like Lilium, like a lot of these sort of pushing the future out and putting a story behind it, putting an idea behind it and putting an engineering focus behind, there's a ton of subsidiary technology that has to get built. And while Lilium might never make the electric airplane for daily air travel, the battery technology that goes into that or, you know, the the propeller or aircraft design that goes into that could have large effects into the wider economy and the wider ecosystem. And just to quickly jump in, I think one of the core dilemmas in the climate category itself is the lack of founders that are taking on these different chunks of problems. Yes, there is a ton of action happening, a ton of funding that's getting funneled into the space, uh, a bunch of really smart and courageous people that are starting their own things. But we still need more high potential aspiring founders that are thinking about this space specifically and taking the leap and having their at-bats. And so I think it, it actually starts on the capital front. How do you de-risk the leap for courageous, smart people. And another really interesting approach to this is a, an accelerator called plug and play. So unlike traditional accelerators that say, hey, come here for a few months, 
we're going to give you, let's say $150,000 and you have to give us seven to 10% of your company. They say, you know what? We don't need any equity position in your company. Instead, we're going to connect you with corporate partners, right? Well-financed behemoths that are looking for solutions right now and effectively are going to help you get your first big customers because they are compensated by the big corporate partners pay them some yearly fee for first dibs access to these set of startups or solutions that could be implemented within their organizations that solve some handful of problems. And I think that it's this type of model we need to see more and more of, right? Giving founders not only non-dilutive capital to go after a problem and solve it, but also their first customers such that they can actually operate the venture sustainably and, and cash flow positive. To talk about killing two birds with one stone with this type of approach, have you heard of plug and play before or concepts of this nature? I, I haven't heard of plug and play specifically, but it brings up Renewal Mill is a great example of this where they got to work under one of the larger tofu manufacturers in the country and basically incubate in the same space solving this pith problem and turning it into usable goods. And it makes a lot of sense, right? That if you want to incubate a company in the right space, working in their market fit and working alongside those companies is a great feedback loop to really solve problems in a way that ensures that there's clear market fit for the outcome. Dude, look at, uh, look at Roku. Roku was a project that was incubated at Netflix headquarters. And it was Netflix's way of getting onto television. I believe up until that point, and if I'm butchering this story, listeners, please correct me. But if I remember from Netflix, the book, they talk about how Roku was really their solution in getting onto the big screen of people's homes. Because up until then, they were web-based I don't know if they had inked their Xbox partnership, but they were in like bizarre places like the center screens on ellipticals, gyms. <laughs> Roku said, hey, this is we're gonna we're gonna solve your problem, but in effect create this massive opportunity. And look at Roku today. Right. One of the one of the great performing stocks. I have a Roku at my house, just they they've really done well over the years. But to your point, it's this, this idea of innovating on the startup creation process by incubating or by starting up within a corporate, a bigger corporate, solving their problems so you get your first customer and then scaling from there. It's a super interesting approach. And I think that to anyone listening that's exploring opportunities, if this is, a, this is a, an interesting way about thinking about your first at-bats. So let's segue. What else you got on your notes? So I was super into this construction piece and it's spawned by a 99% Invisible podcast, which is a great podcast that I recommend that people check out. But something that came up was the idea of embodied carbon in construction. And we were talking about concrete and cement and we were talking about it doesn't necessarily have to be a carbon negative product or a carbon neutral product as long as it's carbon negative in comparison. And so 
the Carbon Leadership Forum had built this tool for engineers and for construction groups to be able to have a data set that says not every steel I-beam, not every concrete pour, not every wood beam is created equal. And so how do we have a metric space in which we can inform decisions being made by architects and engineers who are pushing the boundaries of carbon neutral technology? How do we choose the optimal screw to get all the way down to the true brass tacks of the situation to make the best, most informed choices in terms of how we create things. And this has been another sort of core theme of the past year is oftentimes the biggest hurdle to sustainability is the data set, right? How do we inform creators, entrepreneurs, consumers on the decisions that they're making? And if we can present the information in an easy to access format of this is better for the environment and here's the price difference, or here's the true difference between these two products, Oftentimes, we're seeing consumers make the better choice almost all the time. Consumers aren't stupid. Sometimes the information is just obscured from them or relatively difficult to understand or get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is so out of my world. The only thing that I'm familiar with when it comes to, to tooling for construction and architects, designers, I think it's called AutoCAD just like Photoshop for their industry. Mm -hmm. I wonder if, and I could be wrong about that, that vendor is the party that has the opportunity to have the most impact. Like Lumi, for example, a guest on our show, they do something similar in effect from a supply chain perspective for direct-to-consumer companies. They give brands the ability to choose suppliers, with that have dyes that are sustainable in nature that use recycled materials that are closest to their customers to reduce transportation miles from production to destination and they give brands all this information so that they can make empowered supplier decisions and i wonder in construction maybe for autocad or another vendor if they can do the same thing right like just give the different stakeholders and users, the information they need while they're designing, while they're templating the wireframes and then baking in those sustainability first decisions from day one. So this is super interesting. So the company that makes AutoCAD, Autodesk, um, has the Autodesk Foundation, which is founded on the, one of the core missions is that design can change the world. And so they've compiled a lot of this information on how to design more sustainable buildings that improve health and strengthen communities. They've also got a really interesting sort of news group blog space called Redshift. And I really recommend. So it's Redshift by Autodesk that you check it out. They have a newsletter and basically it's industry news And they have a whole vertical on sustainability. And so it's highlighting architectural developments, engineering developments in this sort of construction space that are at the forefront of these problems. And I think that this is, like you're saying, is an important way to to do it is 
compile the news or compile the resources of the individuals who are doing it. And I think construction is a really big problem for climate. It's also a really weird business space. It's not dominated by clear-cut industry leaders. It's a little bit more fragmented, you know, across the globe. And so how do we consolidate developments in a way that mimics that of Silicon Valley, where there's one sort of news source or one place where a lot of this innovation is coming out of? How do we consolidate the messages that are coming out of from New Zealand all the way to Alaska or whatever it is Mm -hmm. and bring that stuff in? That's super interesting. I have a couple of buddies who, when they were at UMass, they were in, I'm blinking on the whatever the construction major was, but I'm going to send them a note yeah, and BCT. see. Yeah. yeah, exactly. See if, what's the state of art here? Because mm-hmm. to your credit, I think this is a topic worth exploring in its own independent episode. If we were to get Icon Build on or whatever other guests and founders, this could be a whole series, many series we do. Um, yeah, it'd be super interesting. So the the last topic, and we've explored this in some capacity in previous episodes, but it's this notion of local or de- decentralized food. So just to set context on the problem, I think it's over 40% of US land is used for livestock production. And there's a bunch of cascading issues with this, right? We have to tear down forests to create these open land for livestock and forests are incredible carbon sinks. So problem there. And in doing so, we destroy ecosystems, all of the animals and insects that live in these forests. And then as we perpetually and overproduce on these lands, we devastate soil health, which has long-term consequences. And then On top of that, when we look at how we actually grow livestock, the the caloric input required, the amount of food required to grow the livestock versus how much we get out is totally disproportionate. We're investing more to grow the livestock than the food we're getting out. So the math and the consequences are all wrong. And a lot of this, a lot of this phenomenon, a lot of this status quo is enabled because we have a centralized food system. We rely on a very select few behemoths to feed the populace. And in doing so, and because all the incentives that have enabled this type of system, it's super tough for local farmers to compete. So there's a number of solutions to those issues. We can decentralize food production, which reduces food miles, increases nutrient density. We can look to innovative practices like regenerative agriculture that can preserve soil health. We can uh, transition diets from primarily meat and animal-based to plant-based, which means less deforestation. But for the purposes of this combo, a specific opportunity that I'm really interested in are cloud kitchens. Right? Cloud kitchens are a new iteration in the world of food and restaurants, where instead of having a physical storefront and investing all of that capex into starting a store of your own, you work out of these cloud kitchens, which are delivery only locations that have all the physical infrastructure required to launch a food brand of your own. And then you just sell them on third-party apps like Uber Eats and Grubhub Seamless. 
And I think this is a really interesting opportunity for food entrepreneurs because you can look at restaurants as uh, an opportunity to decentralize food. The more people are going to local options and the more that these local options are sourcing food and produce from local farms, then we get all those benefits, less food miles, et cetera. So instead of investing hundreds of thousands of dollars into a physical storefront, more and more people are looking to these cloud kitchens to bootstrap their version one of a food brand for just a couple thousand dollars. So one manifestation of this that I'm, I've talked about for a while and now I'm seeing uh, delivered on in real life are cloud kitchens that leverage the audience and brand of celebrity. Tyga, the rapper, last week just launched Tyga Bites which is a new delivery-only chicken finger brand you can get in a number of cities throughout the U.S., which is just that. No physical storefront, and you can buy his chicken fingers on uh, Grubhub, Uber Eats. And I don't know if he discussed this publicly yet, but I do believe that vegan is going to be a very important part of that, either in collaboration with some of the behemoths like Beyond and Impossible or Nugs, which is an interesting chicken finger startup. But this notion of enabling local at scale without all the upfront capex is just a super compelling opportunity for food entrepreneurs. What do you think? This is super interesting. And to go back into your brief here, centralized food production is incredibly detrimental for local farmers because centralized food production entirely relies upon local farmers. So the chickens that Tyson Foods puts out aren't grown by Tyson Foods or aren't raised by Tyson Foods. They come from regular farmers who have contracts with them. And those contracts are some of the worst working conditions I've ever seen in terms of there is no reliability as to what your income is going to be group to group, Mm -hmm. regardless, if you raise the chickens the exact same way and you're producing, you're using the same inputs, the same climate controls, the size and health of your chicken can dramatically change because of these centralized sources. Mm -hmm. And so we don't necessarily have a food growing problem or a food raising problem. We have a food chain problem. Mm -hmm. So I think like figuring out ways to empower Whether it's ideas like the Shopify for farming that Freight Farms had brought up or these ideas like cloud kitchens, if we can democratize or decentralize how that food gets distributed, it starts to make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that I've been super excited about, particularly in this urban farming push, is that we have a, I think Andrew Yang brought this up best in the 2020 primaries but we've neglected the trades here in America. And one of those trades that I think could be an incredible opportunity is agriculture, particularly in cities. And so there's a lot of money in food and the fact that people aren't going out and getting food at restaurants and things like this. And so changing the inputs of those problems is an incredible opportunity that could be empowering a lot of America's youth who could make a great wage or own their own companies Mm -hmm. 
without having necessarily to take on massive amounts of debt in terms of college. Completely agree. And there's a ton of ideas to unpack here. It's actually another thing I have noted on this idea of enabling local. And you bring up a really good point about the the contracts between big meat and these local farmers. Because the supply chain from production to end destination, whether it's retail, restaurants, has been relatively unchanged for decades. And because Tyson is in, in many ways the vendor of record for those end destinations, the local farmers don't have the benefit of many year relationship building. So they rely on Tyson as their single customer who then in turn forwards the produce to their list of of customers, retailers, et cetera. And because of that, Tyson also has all the leverage in contract negotiation, which gives local farmers Mm -hmm. even fewer negotiating power and leverage in how they choose to grow, the cadence in which they grow, the requirements and the, the like the output requirements and yield requirements are pretty insane. So this well, new startup called Milk Run, and if you, you haven't heard of them, you should check them out. They're like the Amazon for local farmers. Amazon saw the same thing with books. They said, hey, if we created a marketplace that connected the creator with the customer, what a, what opportunity does this unlock? And two, what, what does it do to the economics? And they've done the same thing. They allow local farmers to sell directly to customers. And the tangential benefit outside of now enabling local farmers is reducing food miles. The national average for how far food travels to get from farm to your house is 1,500 miles. So Milk Run has cut down this average to 35 miles by leapfrogging the industrialized, centralized food system entirely. So I think in the same way we saw these incumbent institutions and industries be disrupted by Web 1.0, I think we're just at the start of that same type of disruption in food in the way that food is raised and then ultimately delivered to end customers. Yeah, I think putting it on the web too is a big equalizer. And so I, I we use a local food co-op that we shop at and we're members of, and that's made, our produce has gone up incredibly in quality. All of our lettuce comes from Gotham Greens, which is one of these similar sort of, you know, larger market, but still localized food production. And it's 15 miles down the road. Meats are locally sourced. Everything in that store is, is by and large locally sourced or from pretty sustainable brands that are doing less mm-hmm. staple crop stuff, which is, in, it's incredible. Wait, so how does that work? Do you pay like a monthly fee to be a part of it? So, so it was a one-time fee of a, this, in this case, it was $160. And so it's a lifetime. We're now a member. So we're basically voting member of this thing. It's a cooperative. Uh-huh. Uh, structure, which I could dive into for hours. It was one of the things that I really studied when I was in school is cooperatives and cooperative structures. And they're a lot more pervasive in our economy than a lot of people think. And they're a really great way to structure companies for social benefit. But in joining that, we get some deals for these things, but it also supports the operation of it. But it's just a grocery store. Mm -hmm. You walk in, there's all sorts of produce there. It's 
weird. It's interesting. It's local. You know, we got yellow watermelons, which are actually a completely natural, different kind of melon, which are really tasty. And it was something that I had never seen before. And so the exposure of this stuff is incredible. And it's right in downtown Providence. Wait, so it's just, it's, you go, it's you go. really interesting stuff about how localizing food is a good for the community. It solves some of these food desert problems. And I, I think urban farming is going to be an essential part of that. Where Milk Run started, Portland, Oregon, of course, they have access to really good produce. What does it look like in Baltimore? What does it look like in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, or Houston, Texas, or wherever it is, right? There's some of these places that are so hard to reach with food. And so we have to figure out ways of, of localizing this production. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's why a meatless future is important, too. Figuring out, because we can't get meat necessarily locally sourced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the big question mark as well, and I think this is really what instigated the advent of centralized food production, is that it's hard to get reliable and consistent yield when you're dealing with all of these variable conditions. And industrialized farming solves a lot of those things in many ways. So you're right. It'll be interesting to see how Milk Run scales out of Portland or their home base, you know? Cool, man. This was a blast. You think we should end it here? Yeah, I think we covered a lot of stuff, and I'd love to see what listeners would have to say about this. Episode 50, baby. Coming in hot. (laughs) Dan, again, thank you for everything. For the last year, 50 consecutive weeks through the ups and downs, I just want to say thank you from me. I'm sure everyone else in the community is thankful for enabling this entire project. Yeah, man, you rock. You're the best. Yeah, super exciting, and I cannot wait to see where we go next. (laughs) Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rockstar founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.